I look at our program as you know, really serving two purposes at the university. Uh, one kind of ties along with, with some of the points that were made earlier about the research mission. Uh, you know, we are an R1 institution and, and we hope to support that and help grow that as we, you know, expand the body of knowledge when it comes to athletic training. And two is to continue to provide a good service to the people of Maine and the people across the country. You know, we're pretty fortunate that we produce excellent athletic trainers. It's a fact of life. Athletes get hurt, as do construction workers, dancers, weekend warriors, active seniors, and just about everybody at some point. When that happens, an athletic trainer is often the first person to arrive on the scene. Athletic trainers don't just tape up a player's ankles before a practice or a game. They're healthcare providers who also guide the rehab process to get you back in the game or back on the job. I'm Ron Luznet, and this is the Main Question Podcast. At the top, you heard Chris Nightingale, who directs the athletic training program at UMaine, talk about pushing the field forward and continuing to fill a growing need in Maine and beyond. The program at UMaine has produced many athletic trainers who are working with people from high school athletes to the major leagues, the NHL, and many facilities that cater to non-athletes. Four UMaine graduates have been inducted into the Athletic Trainers Hall of Fame. The need is growing as people stay active much later in life. The athletic training major at UMaine is evolving to meet that need. We sat down with some faculty members and a current student to talk about all of this. We'll let them introduce themselves as we get going and talk about our main question. How can athletic trainers help us live more healthy, active lives? Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us. This is quite an assembly we have here, and we appreciate you taking the time. Maybe let's let's start. Let's just go around. Just say your name and, and what your title is. I, I know you're um, you're a student first and foremost, right? Yeah, uh, my name is Katie Britton. Uh, I'm a senior athletic training student and the president of our athletic training student organization. Great. I'm Alicia Lacey. I'm an assistant professor of athletic training here in our program. I'm Shannon Wright. I'm also an assistant professor of athletic training and the clinical education coordinator for the program. Great. I'm Chris Nightingale. I'm an associate professor at UMaine and the program director. Great. So set the scene for us, and anybody can jump in here. What is this essential job that an athletic trainer engages in? Who do they help? Uh, you know, what's, what's, what's the gig, basically? And is the word trainer, how does that fit into the equation? Sure, I can jump in on this one. Um, it's a really, I think, important time for us to be doing this right now because in March is actually National Athletic Training Month. Um, so it's really exciting, I think, right now that we're, we're given the opportunity to talk about athletic training and particularly our program here. But um, the biggest thing is that athletic trainers are healthcare professionals, healthcare providers, and we provide a variety of services to physically active individuals. So some of those services could be injury prevention, uh, injury evaluation, management, treatment, rehabilitation um, of illnesses and injuries. And then I also think an important thing to highlight is that athletic trainers engage largely in emergency care procedures and providing life-saving um, treatment and management for, for conditions that individuals would be potentially suffering from either on the field or um, in any sort of environment that they are physically active in. So I think a, a really unique thing that we're seeing with athletic training is that it's not just athletes anymore that athletic trainers provide care to. We're seeing it expand um, in really, really cool ways. And to address the trainer piece, I think historically uh, we've been called trainers um, and we really want to move away from that only because it doesn't designate us as healthcare 
providers. Um, a trainer could be a personal trainer, um, uh, a dog trainer, right? Any kind of trainer. So I think it's really important to tie athletic in front of trainer so that we can really distinguish ourselves as healthcare providers and the fact that we're providing really important services to physically active individuals. It's so much more than being a trainer, really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the examples I use with students a lot and with uh, general public is that if you said you were going to a therapist, um, that can mean a bunch of different things, right? Like you can see a physical therapist, you can see a mental health counselor who's uh, described as a therapist. So if you say going, I'm going to a physical therapist, that means something different than going to a therapist. Mm -hmm. So going to see an athletic trainer is different from going to see a trainer in the same way. Right. What is the, what is the history and evolution of athletic trainers look like? Has it changed a lot over the years? Yeah, it's train changed drastically. I think I was trying to prep for this and I think it was like the late 1800s is when athletic training initially started when the first athletic trainer um, kind of came to be and this was before there were any sort of educational standards or requirements or certifications uh, to become an athletic trainer uh, but it actually wasn't until I think 1991 that the American Medical Association um, designated athletic training as an allied health profession uh, so even from the early 18 or the late 1800s to 1991 good chunk of time there, but it took a, a while for uh, athletic training to be uh, acknowledged as an allied health profession, but we're there now, um, and that's really, really exciting. Uh, and I think the other piece is the regulation that's starting to happen with athletic training, and that's happened over the years. Right now, the practice of athletic training is regulated in 48 states in the District of Columbia, 49 states 40, in the District of Columbia. States. Thank right. you. Uh, 49 states, and, and I think 48 of those states we need... Uh, the individuals to pass the board of certification exam. So they need to pass an exam to become certified as athletic trainers. So we're also seeing it in terms of regulation as well, where long gone are the days that anyone can call themselves an athletic trainer. And it's really to protect the credential and also to protect the patients, right? The ones who are, who are receiving the care. So it's been really cool to see. And then I think the last thing I'd speak on, and if anyone wants to jump in, please, please feel free, is it was really a male dominated profession um, earlier on in terms of, of athletic training. And now we're seeing that actually more females are starting to make up the athletic training profession. So it's just a, another exciting shift um, that we're starting to see over the years. And case in point, Katie's here with us. <laughs> what, what drew you to this field? So I knew I wanted to do something sports related and health related, but I didn't necessarily want to go spend more time in school. So right now for me, um, I'm sort of grandfathered in, so I don't technically need a master's, but I know that everyone below me is going to have their master's. So I'm going off to grad school next year. Um, anyway, but for me, I just didn't want to spend like years and years in med school. Um, and I liked that it's not necessarily in an office, like a physical therapist, you typically picture in a physical therapist building and they have their own little office, but this one with the emergency care, you're on the field. Um, so that was more interesting for me. Chris, uh, as has been alluded to, the number and types of people that need athletic training has grown. I mean, seniors are more active. People in general are more active. So it's not just about uh, taping up a football or basketball player's ankles anymore, is it? No, certainly. I think uh, 
you know, when, when you look at the different populations that athletic trainers work with, I think as you alluded to, it's really growing a lot, and, and you're seeing athletic trainers uh, in non-traditional work sites. You know, we consider the traditional work site of, you know, a high school or a college really isn't the case anymore. Uh, even thinking uh, about recent grads from our program, we've had students that uh, have graduated and passed their certification exam that have gone to work for, you know, companies. You know, we have we had a recent grad that uh, works for Chimbro, for example, working with uh, employees uh, that have uh, worksite type injuries. So I think it, it's important to understand that athletic training as a field has really exploded over the last few years and is starting to become more available in terms of work settings. Yeah, because a construction worker, uh, that's a physical job too, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So when we talk about returning people to sport, we're trying to change the language too, to, to, to return to activities, so the activity of their choice, so that we're more inclusive of the patients that we're seeing, whether that's our traditional athletes, our recreational athletes, workers, military, performing arts, all of those kinds of things. Right. Um, so the traditional functions and duties of an athletic trainer, I mean, Players still, still need to have their ankles taped. I, I see that every day at a humane basketball game that, I, that I'm involved with. But so there's got to be some new areas or new technologies that are being brought to, brought to bear here. What's, what are some of the exciting developments in, in that area? Sure. I think one of the things that we're seeing a lot of is a shift from that this is just how we've done it in the past. This is how we kind of grew up and how a lot of us were uh, shepherded into when we did our clinicals or our internships or things like that. Um, and moving more into evidence-based practice. And so really using the literature, the research that's out there, as well as our experience and the patient's uh, values and goals to guide the care that we're providing. Um, in terms of like specific technologies, I think a lot of what's happening is either a rediscovery of technologies that have been around for a while and new ways to use them or new therapies and like manual therapies and ways to manipulate the tissue in the body to kind of get the response we're looking for in terms of healing process and function as well as performance. Um, so that like beyond function, um, right. getting to the performance aspect. Now, I, I think just medically, the, the advances that have been made, I think of uh, Bobby Orr, a great hockey player who tore up his knee in 1970-whatever, and you know basically his career was over, or it took a year. But now an ACL tear, um, you know, people are coming back much quicker from that. That's sort of the advances in the medical field. That's an example of that? Yeah, so that would be beyond our scope of practice. Sure. We're not orthopedic surgeons, but we do help with the returned activity part. So um, the surgical techniques have progressed a long way from the 1970s and 80s and um, that time period. And so that's a lot better. But how we're treating uh, the actual injury itself and then the rehab perspective and process has advanced some. And so we are able to return some people to play a little bit earlier. ACL is still very yeah. intensive, <laughs> long uh, rehab process. So I, I bet. Now, Katie, yeah. I, I don't know if you've worked with teams or the sidelines of games. How, how many uh, injured athletes have you had to run onto the court or the field and, and, and help with? Um, so I have done a clinical rotation since my sophomore year. We do a different one each semester. Um, so with a different team, a different location, like high school, we've done some at Hassan, but uh, that's kind of hard to say because sometimes, like your sophomore year, you don't know as much, so obviously you can't exactly go on the field and help with, you know, everything, but um, once you start to get older, they encourage you to go out with them, so... 
I've just... At least 10, wow, wow. I would say. Yeah. I would say at least 10 I've been able to go out and help with. Um, we, I did football preseason this past August, and we had someone go down for an emergency situation. Um, and since I'm a senior, I know most of what you're supposed to do, so we were able to go out with that, and that was an interesting experience as a student. Um, but I thought it was really useful. So I, I just wonder what it's like for when, when a player is hurt and writhing in pain and you have to arrive on the scene. What, that first time that happened, what was that like and how did you handle it? Were you, were you ready? Um, it was the first day of my first ever clinical. So the first time, <laughs> no, I wasn't ready. Um, as a sophomore. It was As a sophomore, yeah. It was my first day of clinical ever. Um, and I was with soccer. So uh, I played soccer my whole life. So I'm comfortable with the sport. But obviously I was like, I don't even know what I can do here. But pretty much my first thought was like, make sure the player's okay, uh, make sure they're comfortable while the certified athletic trainer does what they need to do to help them off the field and assess what's going on. So, Great. so maybe you can describe the program here at UMaine uh, in, in terms of the changes that are underway. It's going to a master's level program now. And it's a, is it a four plus one or, or why make that switch? Why, why is that? That's the way the industry's going, right? Yeah, so as a whole, our profession is moving from an entry-level bachelor's degree into an entry-level master's degree. Uh, and so that's at least two years of graduate work to become an athletic trainer to sit for our national certifying exam. Um, here at UMaine, currently we are accepting applications for our master's program to start in the fall, and we'll also be teaching out our bachelor's program at the same time. Um, Moving forward, we hope to have uh, an accelerated program, but we're still kind of in the process of figuring that out behind the scenes. And so our hope is to have a three plus two, which is becoming more the standard across the, the country for AT programs. So when that happens, after five years, a graduate can go right into the field, take the test, go right into the field and start working. Yep. That's great. Um, so you talked about some of this, uh, you know, high schools, other colleges in the area, and certainly we have a Division One athletic team uh, program here at the university. Talk about the opportunities to help other schools that don't have these uh, resources and also to work in a Division One program like Maine has. Um, that, that's a, a great working lab to work in, right? Whoever wants to take that one. Yeah, I can, I can take it. As the clinical education coordinator, I am the one that assigns our students to their clinical rotations. And so we try to have and offer a variety of different clinical sites for them so that they can see the differences in how a D1 program operates differently from a D3 program at the collegiate level. And then obviously how a high school would be very different from a collegiate setting, working with minors and parents and high school level athletics versus like a D1 level. Um, some other places that we have are a couple of clinics and they typically get a general medical rotation. So kind of seeing how athletic trainers fit into a doctor's office and work hand in hand with them. It helps our students understand where and how athletic trainers can practice and the impact that they can have outside of collegiate athletics because as we've talked about, we did kind of grow up as a profession in collegiate athletics and that's what people tend to think of us as. Um, but we go into so many other areas and understanding that here at the University of Maine, we have a lot of resources in the athletics department um, and someplace else, like a high school, might not have those same resources. So how does an athletic trainer function there um, when you go from having everything to having 
Not as much, um, if anything. That's exactly what I was going to say, because I feel like reflecting on my own clinical practice journey, I had everything at my disposal when I was going through my educational program. And then my first clinical placement as a certified athletic trainer was a local high school in Connecticut that did not have nearly the same amount of resources at at the school that I had when I was going through as a student and could get hands-on practice with. So things that I learned, I couldn't necessarily apply. So how can I do it differently um, without having those resources? So I think giving students those different experiences is really important. Yeah. You have to give the care no matter what you have at your disposal, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think Katie could probably speak to that because she's been at several different kinds of clinical sites. Yeah. So for me, um, it's sort of deciding where I want to go after I graduate and get my certification. So being able to be placed at like D1, D3. Um, Right now I'm at a clinic in Brewer with Amy Curry called The Block. Um, So that's sort of a general population clinic, but that has given me an idea of what I wanna kinda go for once I get my certification, which has been really helpful because my introduction class, my freshman year, it was here's what we can do, here's where we can go, what do you wanna do? Right. And we were all like, I don't know yet. And they were like, well, you'll find out as you go through. So that's been really helpful. Um, You can see how paces sort of change. Obviously, like they said, um, different resources, um, how to work around it, stuff like that. So it's been really helpful for that. Right. So we're sitting here in the West Jordan Athletic Training Complex. Uh, Chris, I know you knew Wes and uh, he was a legendary trainer, as, as we know, was at the university for a long time. This facility here is, I imagine, a working laboratory. Just talk about some of the facilities that students and, and, and faculty use here to, uh, to do their thing. Certainly, Ron. Uh, we're pretty fortunate in terms of the space that we have and the resources that we have uh, as an academic program. Uh, the typical university, often you see a shared sort of facility where there might be a classroom located off their varsity athletics athletic training room. Uh, and the class, if there's no one in the athletic training room, there's no practices or things going on, might be able to go in and use some of the equipment. But if you know a team is getting ready for their practice or to you know participate in a game or whatever, uh, you know they kind of get pushed to the side. Uh, we have our own designated space. Again, we're sitting in the West Jordan Center a lab. Um, we have two designated classrooms. We have an aqua therapy room. Uh, that we utilize. We have a large rehab space and this is purely designated for student use. So students in our program get the opportunity, we always talk about kind of the the learning process and students will begin in the classroom and we'll talk about the theory behind uh, a specific technique or whatever. They'll come into this space and have the opportunity to practice it with a peer, uh, learn how to you know do a diagnostic test or whatever and then in that clinical experience they'll actually get to practice it with a real athlete you know again knock on wood you know Unfortunately, sometimes athletes get hurt, and, and it's a chance for our students to actually diagnose real-world actual injuries that they can encounter. Right. There have been a lot of alums that have come through this program and have gone on to do great things. Uh, we talked about West Jordan, of course, Mark LaTondra, who was uh, with the San Francisco Giants, among mm-hmm. others, and I think he's uh, quite high up in the, in the world of athletic training right now. Can you uh, some of, share some of the other names and, and what they've done and where they've been? You know, it's interesting because for a program that, that's relatively small and, and might not have the national prestige as, as other programs, we're pretty fortunate in terms of the folks that have come through uh, historically. You know, in preparation for, for the podcast, I, I did a little bit of research, and there are four national uh, athletic trainer Hall of Fame 
members that did have close ties to the University of Maine, dating you know historically back to Stanley Wallace, who Wallace Poole is named after. Certainly, Wes Jordan, who who was the head athletic trainer on campus uh, here from the mid '60s until the mid '90s. You know, Mark Latondra, as you mentioned, uh, he he was a uh, athletic trainer in professional baseball with the Yankees and Giants organizations, and then actually started uh, umpire services. He worked for the major league offices, uh, providing care and coordinating care for the major league umpires because they certainly can get hurt. Uh, you know, when they're on the road with the teams. Uh, and additionally, Tim Weston, who's the head athletic trainer at Colby College, Tim also has some uh, ties in minor league baseball and is a graduate of our program. Tim is a uh, Hall of Famer, recent Hall of Famer this past year. So uh, for a small program, the fact that we have four national Hall of Famers speaks very highly. Um, additionally, we, we've placed people in, in you name it in terms of work settings. Um, Major League Baseball, we have a number of people that are in there now. Ben Potenziano with the Miami Marlins. Uh, John Catrides with the Washington Nationals. Uh, people you know, in professional hockey. Um, and in other work settings, certainly collegiate settings, high school settings. Uh, one of the, the best parts of my job is, is that I get calls just about weekly, you know, with people looking to hire our grads because the reputation of the UMaine Athletic Training graduate is that they're going to be well prepared and they're going to be able to step in and do a good job. So we're pretty fortunate in that regard. So with the new program going to a master's uh, le level, um, students can opt, maybe they can now in bachelor's, but they can do a capstone research experience. Can you talk about what kinds of things they might explore that'll either help um, advance the field or help them find a niche that they want to explore? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, a, again, a really unique part, and, and undergraduate students can certainly engage in, in research if they want to. There's ways to do it here, like through an honors thesis and other things like that. But um, when we transition to the grad level, they certainly have the option of, of doing a capstone research experience. And I think it's important to first talk about why um, that, that is you know, an option for students. And I think profession-wide, um, we're please placing a greater emphasis on evidence-based practice. And you, talk, you heard Shannon talk about evidence-based practice, right? Using evidence to guide um, the decisions that we're making in terms of the, the care that we provide to our patients. Uh, Profession-wide, there's an increased emphasis on that. So it's really, really important that students get the experience while they're learning um, to learn a little bit about research. I think it carries kind of a negative connotation sometimes. It's like, oh, it's a lot. It's scary, right? But to kind of unpack that for students a little bit and make them see that research isn't scary, um, that it's really impactful, that there's ways to engage in research that's not so research heavy. Um, I think the definition of research is also changing, but students can really first, when they come to our program, we have a research methods class earlier on in the program, and that's really just to expose students to research, what it means to conduct research, what type of knowledge we can produce um, with research, how we can apply that knowledge in a healthcare type environment. Um, so that's that initial introduction. And then for students who really get excited about it, they can of course engage in that um, capstone research experience where they are coming up with a question that they want to answer and figure out how they can research that with the guidance of a faculty member um, and kind of go through that process of, of developing knowledge and creating knowledge and then learning how that might impact um, clinical practice. So it is a, a really unique and I think exciting aspect of, of our program. And I don't want to say that uh, students have to do research in this area or that area. The beauty of it is that they can do it in whatever area is most interesting to them. So if they see something in clinical practice that makes them think a little bit or wonder, um, that's an opportunity to turn that into a potential research capstone experience. So um, just identifying what they think is exciting and what kind of 
gets them motivated and going and turning that into a research study, I think is kind of what we're going for with that. Just getting them exposed. Yeah. Katie, is that something you've opted for or have you had time to even consider that? Um, So I took a class my sophomore year called therapeutic modalities where we kind of started to do research. We had to come up with a question um, and pretty much we would do our research uh, guided by our professor to help us figure out like how do we find the research? Where do we look? What are we supposed to type in to find what we're looking for? Um, just to get the answers we're looking for for our question. So I had like a sort of mini version of that in one of my classes sophomore year, but my internship now, um, we do a project for the internship. And pretty much for mine, I'm doing sort of an advocacy project for the profession itself, but for my um, preceptor's clinic in Brewer. So I was gonna do the five domains of athletic training, do some research on like a specific topic in each, and kind of write like an infographic to for her to post. Um, mm-hmm. So research so that I can make an infographic so that the <laughs> general population understands what we do because a lot of times they don't they necessarily they don't think of what we do they think right. we just tape they don't understand um, the entire scope of practice so that's kind of what I'm doing for my internship but it does involve research yeah right there is a test a certification test that you have to take to become. Certified, of course, right? Um, uh, talk about how humane students have traditionally done on that. Has that been a, a good success rate? Yeah, historically, we, we've actually had a pretty high success rate. Um, you know, dating back, I've been here for 15 years now. I, I don't know what the total percentage is, but for the longest time, we, we, we kind of bumped along at about a 90% first time pass rate. And, and kind of the first attempt to pass rate is one of the metrics that gets used to evaluate program success. Um, you know, we dipped a little bit during the pandemic. Right now, you know, the, the three-year average that we kind of look at is about 77%, which is close to the national average. Um, but in terms of overall pass rate, we're still very successful. Everyone that has attempted the exam um, from our program has passed it. Uh, and that's not something that every program can, can brag about. Um, we're pretty fortunate. We have good students like Katie that, that uh, put in the work and, and are well prepared uh, when they sit for that exam and they graduate. Why are athletic trainers in such demand now? Is that sort of reflective of people staying active later in life? There's more injuries and more uh, recovery that needs to happen, basically, right? Yeah. I mean, I can really quick. I think it's exposure and increased value, um, personally, but if you want to jump in. Yeah, and I think the general public is starting to understand the long-term risk of injuries that are mismanaged or not treated appropriately. Um, So one of the big things that we've talked about for, what, the last 15 years now is concussion management care or concussion management. Um, So that's one that comes to, to mind a lot, but also just in terms of people staying active and moving a lot longer in their lives and their lives are lasting longer, all of which are great things, but inherently come with the risk of injury, um, especially as we age and our balance changes and our strength changes and things like that. Um, And I think exposure, like we've just, we've had a lot of exposure in the last six months even as a profession. Um, And I think during the pandemic, people really realized how versatile we are as healthcare providers, um, because a lot of athletic trainers who were working in our traditional athletic setting weren't because there weren't a lot of athletics going on potentially in some places of the country during that first year of the pandemic. And so while the athletic trainers may have been there 
for practices and things if those were happening. They were also doing other things to help with the actual healthcare. I shouldn't even say actual with other healthcare um, administrative tasks that were happening behind the scenes during that time. And so I think the value of us uh, as a profession has just been realized across the board and people are taking note and saying, um, I want that for my kid at this level in this school, um, but also like at this level and also for myself. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I think exposure and value go hand in hand, right? So yeah. as more people are exposed to what we do, who we are um, as athletic trainers, I think inherently there's an increased value placed on the services that athletic trainers provide. Um, and I will say that as, I mean, over the years, we're seeing more and more athletic training positions open, more athletic trainers take those positions. And I think a lot of it is because, you know, maybe the, the person who's now a coach at a high school um, was a student athlete at one time and had an athletic trainer that they could go see. And now they're filling that coaching position at a high school that doesn't have one. And they're realizing what's missed out on not having that medical provider there, that healthcare professional there. So I think it's also a little bit of that too, where over the years, I'm hoping we're going to see um, a more value and in, in place on the profession and increased exposure because we're seeing people who had access to those services at one point take these positions where maybe they don't currently have an athletic trainer there and they might be pushing, more willing to push to have somebody in that role. Right. Yeah. So for those of us who are weekend warriors, what, what, what tips do you have for us uh, that are maybe not as young as we used to be to reduce or avoid the need to see an athletic trainer in, in the first place and rehab injuries? Any, any uh, advice you could give uh, just gen of a general nature? Yeah, of course. Um, I would say the very basic advice is make sure that you're training appropriately. So um, warming up, cooling down, not going above and beyond what you can do like understanding your limitations and understanding that those can be pushed but they need to be pushed appropriately so don't try to go run a marathon if you haven't <laughs> trained to run a marathon kind of thing like it's at any level at any age that's not gonna feel good right um and then really mobility i would say is a big one that's just continuing to move and continuing to keep your joints as mobile as possible with whatever uh, conditions you have, whatever is pain-free and comfortable uh, is really just going to help continue that as you, as we, as all of us continue mm -hmm. aging and um, balance work is another one. I think right. Chris would agree with that. His research right. focuses on that a lot. And so, so. Balance. Hydration. Hydration. I think we underestimate the value of hydration as I think right. about yeah. how I only had a cup of coffee today and almost zero water. Uh, <laughs> hydration does a lot more for us than we think it does. So right. that would be one thing that yeah. I would add. Yeah. So there. as an ailing weekend warrior, after, <laughs> after we're done, I need you to give me a stretch for the piriformis muscle. Oh, I'm, lear oh, I'm learning, yeah, I'm learning all, this, uh, all this anatomy that I don't want to know, but I have oh, to know yeah. because <laughs> things hurt. So, um, so we'll have to, we'll, we'll do that. That'll be on the director's cut of the DVD. Sure, uh, sure. So, so as we wrap up here, what's on the horizon? As this master's level program sort of kicks into gear, where do you see the overall program headed here at UMaine? And, and please all jump in uh, with whatever you think uh, you, you see happening or hope, to, hope happens. Well, I think, you know, we have some pretty big aspirations, and we're in a good position. You know, we have some supportive alums. We have incredible new faculty that are, you know, we, we hope are happy here and want to stay with us a long time and help develop something uh, special. We're undertaking, the, beginning a capital campaign to potentially uh, do some expansion in our facility, which again, we've already got one of the top facilities and, and, and we hope to make it even uh, more special. 
uh, with some of the things that we'd like to add down the line. Um, ultimately, I think, you know, from a personal perspective as the program director, I, I look at our program as you know, really serving two purposes at the university. Uh, one kind of ties along with, with some of the points that were made earlier about the research mission. Uh, you know, we are an R1 institution, and, and we hope to support that and help grow uh, that as we, you know, expand the body of knowledge when it comes to athletic training. Uh, and two is to continue to provide, um, you know, a good service to the people of Maine and to people across the country. You know, we're pretty fortunate that we produce excellent athletic trainers. Um, and, and I can't take any credit for that anymore. We're just fortunate that we have really good students that come in and, and are willing to work really hard to, and put that effort in. Um, and so I hope we can continue that and continue to be that place where people look to when they say, you know, we need to hire someone. Let's find someone from the University of Maine. Mm -hmm. Anybody? Last words from anybody? Gosh, those were great last uh, words. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I that can... was like a mic drop moment. I don't know if I can add on to that. Right. Um, but I no, I think it's it's I think Maine is unique where there's a need for athletic trainers. I mean, there's a lot of rural locations in Maine where, um, unfortunately, individuals don't have access to athletic trainers or appropriate medical care or health care. So I think that kind of um, it fills our cups up a little bit too, knowing that the students who graduate from our program, if they decide to stay in the state of Maine, are really serving the larger state um, and really kind of making an impact that way because it is so unique compared to some of the other states that we have in the United States. So um, just continuing, I think, to fulfill that mission of, of contributing to the greater state of Maine. Great. Well, thank you all so much. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for checking us out. You can find all of our episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. UMaine's YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook pages have links as well as Amazon and Audible. Questions or comments? Send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ryan Luznet. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.